Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR Digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, folks. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast. Yes, I'm here on my own, but we're building a team. It will come in the future. But uh, at the moment, you're stuck with me, and uh, today we've got Quite an interesting program, I'd say. We're going to see if we can have a chat with Lydia Thorpe. Lydia Thorpe is a Gunai Gudinjamara woman who lives on Wurundjeri land in Melbourne's north, and she's put her hand up to be the Greens candidate for the Northcote by-election. And uh, she could be the first Indigenous woman elected to the Victorian Parliament. So we're going to find out a little bit about her background and uh, also what leads her into... Uh, as a first uh, people's uh, representative to uh, take up the mantle of uh, the democratic process as it stands within our framework at the moment. So that should be a very interesting chat because, uh, of course... Uh, the uh, Northcote uh, election is very important for the state of play in the local parliament uh, it, and uh, it does appear that the Greens might have some uh, edge on uh, a Labor candidate and it will then have uh, some sort of effect perhaps on a, a number of very compelling issues, particularly things like public housing. Anyway, we'll see uh, how the tension is developing in that particular uh, sphere. We're going to uh, go up north. We're going to uh, talk to one of the Pine Gap uh, peaceful demonstrators who were gathered up by a uh, retrospective law to uh, uh, charge them with uh, unlawful uh, um, going going into a place that is uh, an unprescribed uh, area, which uh, in fact the government had to ca- create a law in order to uh, target these people. Their case is coming up. Uh, their uh, story is all about fighting for peace and uh, getting rid of American bases. And of course, you may realise that Pine Gap is not actually publicly call an American base. That's a sort of a, a strange little administrative feat that uh, says that uh, America doesn't have a base in Australia, which is a sort of a strange kind of 
Orwellian fallacy that's going on. So we'll have a chat with Paulie who is um, coming up to his his case. He'll give you some idea of what's going on there and how you can support their uh, their work towards peace. Later on, we're going to have a word with Bill Mitchell from Newcastle University. You might have uh, seen the absolutely outrageous piece of... Uh, uh, Skullduggery that it, it just just uh, an outrageous piece of uh, uh, I, I just I just it takes my breath away. Uh, wages growth is unlikely to pick up from record lows without a lift in productivity, according to some of the country's most senior business leaders. That this idea, as uh, NAB, for example, is going to slash and burn its workforce, 6,000 are going to go as they reap a $6 billion profit. And the furphy, the, this furphy that uh, everything will be okay if product, productivity is increased. So we're going to lift the curtain on that particular piece of uh, crap basically, that's constantly been uh, uh, still still apparently got neoliberal legs. We're supposed to believe that they've got their hands on the tiller and everything is fine and cool and if all the workers just uh, work just a little bit harder, it sounds a little bit like a slave ship during the Roman times, doesn't it? Uh, you know, just work a little bit harder so that uh, what? Something might happen? you might get more profits. Anyway, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie. Uh, we'll, um, here's a couple of important announcements. The Solidarity and Defence Fund is a democratically controlled fund that materially supports activists who are facing legal sanctions or other problems due to their stand against injustice and oppression. All contributors who pledge at least $5 a month can take part in collectively making decisions about how the fund is used. Your contributions support and grow movements for social justice and defend activists in the fight for a better world. For more information or to join, go to patreon.com forward slash solidarity defense fund. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash solidarity defense fund. A 3CR supporter. It's Fiesta time at Pepper Tree Place. Indulge in the magic of Fiesta in the beautiful garden surrounds at 512 Sydney Road, Coburg. Located opposite the old Pentridge Prison, Pepper Tree Place is a community-powered garden and nursery. 11th of November, 10 till 4pm, Fiesta will feature a fabulous musical lineup with Jukebox Racket, Ukulele Yui, Tony Swain, George Washing Machine and the Thornberries. Sustainable lifestyle and garden workshops run all day for free. Our pop-up cafe serves great coffee and treats, plus barbecue and bakeries serving hot foods and garden fresh salads. All welcome at this family-friendly, alcohol-free day. A 3CR supporter. Yeah, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and we've got Lydia. G'day, Lydia. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Very good. How are you? I'm good too. Um, Lydia Thorpe, of course, is uh, the Greens candidate for uh, the Northcote, upcoming Northcote election. And uh, one of the things that's most compelling about your pre-selection, Lydia, of course, is that you're a Gunai Gurdinjamara woman who uh, 
has put her hand up to be part of the democratic process and potentially you could be the first Indigenous woman elected to the Victorian Parliament. Can you tell us a little bit about your political background? Oh, wow. Um, I've been born into politics. It's been you know, something that my family have um, been a part of, you know, forever with my, um, starting with my, well, goes back a long time, but I'll start with my great-grandmother, Edna Brown, who, um, you know, set up the Aboriginal Funeral Fund as a result of our people being buried as paupers in... Um, the 1960s, when her and uh, a beautiful lady by the name of Annie Fisher McGuinness um, together set up the funeral fund to, um, you know, to raise money to ensure that our people were buried with dignity and had proper burials. And then her daughter, my grandmother, Alma Thorpe, um, helped set up the Victorian Aboriginal Health Service, the first one in Melbourne. And then most people know my uncle Robbie Thorpe and my mother Marjorie Thorpe, um, who was um, co-commissioner on the Royal Commission into the Removal of Children. So politics is something that's um, been talked, to, you know, talked about throughout my life. Um, every dinner, every you know, every family gathering is always talking about politics. So it's, it's nothing new to me. No, um, it might be. A different kind of politics that I've gone into, but politics is something that I've been born into. Yeah. And um, the Greens is certainly, you know, I found my political home, if you like, um, in, in, in this realm. It's a very, your family has taken a very practical approach to uh, getting uh, First Peoples rights, uh, human rights in their own country, you'd have to say. That's right. That's right. And, and, you know, we'll continue to do that. My sister's a, um, you know, part of the, um, the woes of the Aboriginal resistance, still fighting for, for our people's rights. And, you know, even my grandmother um, is still attending marches and, and speaking out for um, equality for our people and, and, you know, better treatment because after all this time we still have the highest imprisonment rate. We still have, you know, 2,000 Aboriginal children in the state um, in out-of-home care. Uh, we still have deaths in custody. So, it, you know, whilst there might be some improvements in some, some areas, there's still a lot of work to do. The last time I saw you, or the first time I saw you talking, Lydia, was actually at the uh, IPAN conference, recent IPAN conference, and uh, you were on the same uh, speaking list as uh, uh, as a fellow Green, um, Scott Ludlam, uh, who, uh, and it, you, what I noticed at that talk was to that group of people, a large group of people, was how affected they were by uh, what uh, you had to say and what Mariki, your sister, had to say. Uh, you're making connections, aren't you? Well, yeah, and people don't realise that, you know, there's still um, unfinished business in this country and until you get on the same, you know, platforms, I mean, that, that IPAN conference was about, you know, ending the wars and, and stopping the wars going on around the world. And, you know, there's, there's one still here. There's one, there's, there's an injustice still happening in this country right now to our people, to the first people of this country. And, 
um, we feel that you know there there is still that that war against us because of the continued injustices, because of the statistics not not improving. So it's good for people to make that connection and and that understanding that you know it's all right to talk about everywhere else, but have a look in our own backyard and let's start working towards fixing the problem here. Why did you decide that it was important to uh, use the engage with the democratic process by uh, putting your hand up for uh, a seat in parliament in Victoria? Uh, it wasn't a, a you know it wasn't a light decision that I made. It was something that I went to my family with and and sought permission. It's also something I sought permission from the um elders because it's about doing business in their country. But, you know, I just feel that, um, that there's only so much I can do outside of um, that political space and we need to change... We need to change it up, pretty much. And so I put my hand up um, for, for two pre-selections because I, once I made the decision, that was it. And it was like, no, I'm, we need to do this. And I had the backing of my... Uh, of my elders, and sure enough, I was pre-selected, and you know it's been an amazing journey um, since that day. That the amount of support that I'm getting from um, people inside the party and outside the party has just been amazing. So um, you know it's well overdue. We need an Aboriginal voice in that parliament instead of making decisions for us all the time that obviously aren't doing us any good. We need to, um, you know, have a have an Aboriginal voice that can keep people to account in that space. And why, why did is there a particular connection that you feel with your uh, your issues uh, with the Greens? Do, do, is the oh, Greens policies? Yeah. Hmm? Yep. Yeah. Lots of our um, well, most of our Greens values and policies align with my own. You know, it's about um, standing up for injustice. It's about protecting our country and it's about working with integrity and, you know, transparency and accountability. So the Greens certainly align with my values and um, that's why it's so easy for me to be able to, to speak out about those things that I feel strongly about because they're all of our Greens policies and um, values. So, yeah, grassroots democracy, that's... That's what I'm about. That's what I've been um, raised in, and that's what we that's what we need to get back to instead of these old parties, you know, um, and the way they do business. The community need a voice in there, and I believe I can provide that. And uh, Northcote, of course, is a very uh, hot topic at the moment. Uh, my connection with it is following the uh, public housing debate. Uh, with uh, the yeah. Labor government deciding that uh, it's going to basically hand on a platter a whole lot of public housing t- uh, public housing titles to public, private developers, and uh, Northcote has got one of those estates. Is that a key yeah. issue for you? Absolutely. Um, and you know, growing up in public housing, I understand uh, what it's like, um, and you know, being part of a community and being part of schools around. Um, we've, we've grown up is so important and for these developers and, and you know, to be dictating to communities and 
um, government to be selling this land off is just it's just criminal. I mean, you know, where are these families going to go? They're saying that they're increasing public housing and um, you know offering families to come back to those new developments. However, those um, developments will be will comprise of one and two bedrooms, so they will not have enough three-bedroom homes for these families to come back to. In fact, it's, it's something like um, oh, out of you know 50-something three-bedroom homes that they have now, there'll only be five. Mm. So where do those families go who have children that have grown up in the area and even elders that have you know made lifelong connections in those areas? Where are they going to go? They've been um, totally, dis- you know, they're, they're about to be totally displaced. Some people have been given to December to be out, and um, that just goes to show that you know the government doesn't care about you know, the grassroots people, and, and um, that's something that I'm very strong about and can speak um, out for and stand up for. What's been the re- <laughs> What's been the response? I noticed that you've got some community engagement. Uh, strategies going on. Do you want to tell my listeners about uh, how they can get involved if they wanted to become involved? Uh, in the campaign or in the public housing? Oh no, in, in the uh, public. No, in the uh, campaign in general. I noticed that. Uh, I mean, what's been the community response to you uh, uh, coming out and oh. saying that you're going to stand? Oh, it's been great. You know that Every door that I've knocked on has, um, you know, we've had a, a great in-depth conversation about a whole range of topics. Um, but generally, you know, I've got people coming into your office. I've got, we've got hundreds of people um, door knocking and running stalls. General community have just been amazing. They're really excited and know that we need change. We need change in that parliament. And people are really sick and tired of these of these old parties. Got a lot of um, you know of the opposition um, people coming over to the Greens to vote for this um, for the Northern election. So it'll be really interesting and it'll be very close. Um, but we've got the support. Now, just before I let you go, uh, and thank you very much for talking to me this morning. I know it's early. Uh, you've had a, quite a lot of experience uh, in administrative functions, haven't you? Because uh, it's all very well to get in, but you have to be politically astute and you have to be a hard worker. And it's quite clear you are because, you know, you've been, you've been the chair of the Victorian NAIDOC committee. You've uh, been... a, a public education advocate and you sit on the uh, Smith Family National Advisory Board. These are really mm-hmm. uh, set you up, don't they, for this kind of work? They do. And, and you know, I was an advisor to the, the Municipal Association of Victoria for a number of years, working with every local government in Victoria. Um, I've been on ministerial advisory committees. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's not new. I know how the system works. And I'm, I'm more than you know capable to um, to do this job, and I have, as I said, I have all that support behind me. So, yeah, I've I've, um, I've worked in this space for a very long time, and it's it's time. It's time to do politics differently. 
Thanks for talking to me, Lydia. No worries. Thank you. That was Lydia Thorpe who has put a hand up for the Northcote election as she's uh, the potentially the uh, first Indigenous woman who could be elected to the Victorian Parliament. Uh, and the public uh, housing issue, don't forget November the 11th, 1 o'clock, the uh, Walker Street Estate, they're having a, a public rally around public housing and the uh, state government's plan to... Uh, Dissolve basically a whole range of uh, estates, uh, walk-ups, and giving the titles over to private developers with a very small return to the public housing. Uh, well, actually, it's supposed to be going into social housing, which is also a new plan, which is not the same as public housing at all. I went off to a uh, La Trobe University 50 year celebration event last week and it was uh, part of the ideas and society program that they've been putting on through the entire year. They had uh, uh, Kevin Rudd. Kevin Rudd rose up out of the ashes and he was talking about his uh, the thing that he likes to talk about in particular, which is China. And uh, this is part of his speech because, uh, of course, China and uh, what's happening in uh, the world in relation to Chinese-American relations is very important to us all. Uh, he said, just as a little uh, an aside, that, uh, yes, China realises there's issues and is nervous but has a poe face and, and a strategy, while America, he suggests, has no strategy at all. second part of what I wanted to say in these formal remarks at the beginning was to do with what's China's response to the above and what does Xi Jinping actually think about it. Uh, answer is, I don't really know. I can't say it this definitively, but I'll give vent to a number of prejudices, perceptions and experiences that I've had and then attempt to give it uh, some form of academic um, uh, dignity later in my remarks. But this is uh, an unfolding exercise. Uh, we do not have perfect information about what happens within a one-party state. We do not have perfect under, understanding of what drives China's view of the world in the Xi Jinping period, but there are certain evidences. For me, there are two major events we should focus on before I conclude in the events of yesterday and the conclusion of the 19th Party Congress. 
The two major events we should focus on, one I touched on before, which is the formal abandonment, actually in 2014, of the Deng Xiaoping doctrine of hide your strength, bide your time, never take the lead. At a central uh, work conference on foreign policy held in Beijing in November of 14, Xi Jinping in a closed meeting articulated that that was dead, that there would be a new approach to China's place in the world, which was, uh, to use the Chinese uh, expression, fen fa yo wei, or more recently, yo suo zuo wei. And this, these expressions essentially point to a decisively activist Chinese foreign and strategic policy in the world. And if you read the published text of that uh, speech, which is only in part, most of it still remains uh, unpublished for the rest of the world to see, it points to two or three things which should catch our attention. One, the need for uh, a new type of great power relations between the United States and China, uh, which essentially means parity between the two in a new form of G2. Secondly, it points to a new system of international relations, uh, which is uh, one in which China's voice will be more strongly heard and not just those of the successful powers, most of whom are former colonial powers, in the global settlement reached in 1945. Uh, and thirdly, on top of that, an indication that China will become much more activist in securing its interests uh, with um, its border states, 14 in all, um, where China wants not just positive relations, beneficial relations, but if it can, compliant relations as well. These are the broad contours of what we see emerging from that particular statement uh, of uh, Xi Jinping's view of what Chinese foreign policy and strategic policy direction should be in the future. Of course, that's at one level. Underpinning that is the reality of what has unfolded now for the last decade and a half, when Chinese firms began to go out into the world, in a, in a phrase originally put together by uh, Deng, uh, by um, the Chinese administration at the time under Jiang Zemin called Zou Chu Chu. Go out into the world, create businesses, uh, follow economic and business opportunities. Uh, and that's precisely what Chinese firms have done, state-owned enterprises and private firms. The consequence of which is 15 or so years later, ask every country in Asia who is its uh, principal foreign policy, who is its principal trade partner and who is its principal investment partner, the answer invariably, with only a few exceptions, is the People's Republic of China. The United States at a pure economic level and its footprint across the, right, the, the region as a whole is not just coming second, it's usually coming third, fourth or fifth after Japan, progressively and prospectively, after other Southeast Asians and even India. And so the economic footprint is changing, China's presence across the wider region and now the wider world and Latin America and Africa, the Middle East, one belt, one road, is in fact creating a, uh, a Chinese uh, economic footprint which increasingly the governments of the world find very hard to resist. A simple proposition we know from international relations theory and practice is that once you have economic power, it in turn engenders political power. Uh, it in turn makes possible to have security power through the acquisition of military capabilities, which in turn generates foreign policy power, which in turn generates strategic power. And that is very much the process which is unfolding. To conclude on Xi Jinping, this conference, uh, which has uh, just been held in Beijing, is no ordinary conference. Uh, in the history of the Communist Party, they hold them every five years. 
Uh, I first started uh, observing and analyzing reporting on these conferences when I was an undergraduate at the ANU at the famous um, uh, third plenum of the 11th Central Committee uh, way back in 1978. Uh, and then when I was a diplomat in Beijing on the 12th uh, uh, Party Congress, and then what was called a Special Party Congress uh, thereafter. And so between the 11th and the 12th, and now held the 19th, one every five years or thereabouts, uh, you're capable of forming a view as to which are kind of marking time and which are actually heralding something new. I think this one is heralding something new. And uh, I will leave you simply with this uh, uh, conclusion or perhaps two. The first is when we start to look at the personnel conclusions and who has now become a member of the standing committee of the Chinese um, uh, Politburo, and I look at those personalities, the position politically of Xi Jinping is much more consolidated than ever it was before. Remember the Politburo standing committee he inherited five years ago was selected by his predecessors. This is his. And when I look at the personalities, uh, whether it's uh, people like um, uh, Wang Yang, whether it's people like Zhao Leji, whether it's people like Han Zai, or whether it's people like Wang Huning or Li Zhangshu, as well as Li Keqiang, who continues, uh, I can see very much that each of those leaders, perhaps with the exception of one, owes their political promotion to Xi Jinping personally. Ten of the 15 new members of the Chinese Politburo are also very close uh, to Xi Jinping personally. That's the new members of the Politburo. And so when you look at those numbers and then you add a couple of other factors, which is the anti-corruption campaign, which has been used for anti-corruption purposes, but also power consolidation purposes, will continue into the future, albeit not over the, under the previous head, Wang Qishan, that still maintains itself as a vehicle for the further consolidation of Xi Jinping's power. And then we have, of course, the entrenchment of his ideology, Xi Jinping Sisyang, uh, Xi Jinping thought, uh, into the party's constitution as well. Leading me to the conclusion, and uh, Linda and I may disagree about this at the margins, I'm not sure, uh, that we now are facing a Chinese leader who is more powerful than any Chinese leader since indeed Mao. So the question for us as we look to the future is, how then will this power be used, given the broad contours of Xi Jinping's worldview that I articulated from his speech of November of 2014? And how should the rest of us now engage uh, that uh, greater articulation of Chinese power? I am not by instinct a pessimist about this. I spend a lot of time in Beijing working on these questions. I spend a lot of time in the United States working on these questions. And we may still be within a zone where some final diplomatic settlement between the US and the Chinese is possible on the single greatest immediate security threat to us all, which is the North Korean nuclear weapons program. But we are in a state of unprecedented flux, globally, regionally, internally within China itself, and therefore we are in new terrain. It's a time, therefore, for this country, Australia, to be exceptionally mindful through its most senior political leadership of these deep and profound changes now unfolding around us. I thank you for your time. Your sap away 
Dave Arden's new single, Red Desert Man, is a beautiful story inspired by the Aranda, Mati Mati and Gugutha people. When I was a little boy, I would walk with my grandfather. Dave Arden and band will launch Red Desert Man at Catfish at 30 Gertrude Street, Fitzroy on Friday the 10th of November with special guests including Alana Atkinson and the Decoys. All welcome. For more information, head to DaveArden.com, a 3CR supporter. Telling me stories when he was young. Palestine National Day is being celebrated on November the 15th. 
5pm at Federation Square. Join us as we raise the Palestinian flag. Hear Palestinian youth sing the Palestinian National Anthem. Palestinian band 48 will perform traditional and resistance music. Join our dance and dubkey crew and enjoy Palestinian food and culture in this family event. See you there. Palestine National Day, November 15th, 5pm at Federation Square. Be there. A 3CR supporter. Yeah, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and uh, I've been trying to raise the people from up in the north and uh, they're obviously still sleeping in, unavailable and all the rest of it. Uh, but uh, here's a backup. This is, uh, uh, I didn't quite get the chance to play the whole of this. This is Chrissy Lee Horsewood. She did this speech at the uh, uh, Indigenous People's uh, Grassroots Conference a couple of weeks ago and I failed to play the very last bit which was the absolutely fantastic little jewel that she had to offer us. So here you go, listen to it. Yamagara. Yamagara is a formal welcome in the language of Gamilaray. So when we're addressing more than one people in an organised setting such as this, Yamagara. Uh, I am a Gamilaray woman. Gamilaray territory is uh, the bottom half of Queensland and the northern part of New South Wales. I'm 37 years old and also a member of the Stolen Generation. I was taken uh, from my biological mother at birth by... Uh, what we call a fundamentalist Christian organization, uh, the Salvation Army. So uh, as part of the colonization uh, from 1788 until today, uh, there has been um, a government agenda throughout the colonial project to assimilate Aboriginal people into a white Christian paradigm. Uh, So warriors of the Aboriginal resistance our basic, uh, three basic foundation points are resistance, revival, and decolonization. So resisting capitalism and uh, imperialism and colonization, resisting assimilation, uh, reviving our languages, which we were uh, forbidden to speak when the British invaded, uh, we were taken from our homes, uh, forbidden to speak our languages, children were removed from their parents, and uh, that is, is basically our displacement in a nutshell. Uh, now, with the industrial age that we have entered, we have uh, extractivist neoliberal policies to contend with uh, because as Indigenous people, it is our responsibility to be custodians of our land. We come from it and we will return to it and we'd like somewhere to return to. <laughs> That'd be nice. So uh, I can tell you a little bit about uh, how war started. It started as a youth movement at 37. I'm probably, I'm definitely the oldest member of war. (laughs) Uh, And it was born out of uh, four of our collective members travelling to Turtle Island, so America and Canada, what is known as America and Canada. Uh, From that we started to form relations and realise that our struggle mirrored those of our Indigenous brothers and sisters everywhere, that they were facing extermination through uh, extraction, mineral extraction, through assimilist policies, uh, through poverty as well, and also uh, addiction. Uh, So, you know, in terms of of where we are now as a a collective, uh, in Queensland and uh, 
which is Minjin, just so you know, the Aboriginal word for Brisbane is Minjin. Uh, Nam for Melbourne, so we have two chapters. And for this panel to discuss whether or not it is possible for us as Indigenous people to work with solidarity groups, I can say yes. Yes, it is possible. Is it difficult? Yes. Yes, it is. Um, less so when uh, we are thrown into the situation of forming alliances with uh, environmental-based organisations, okay? Because the question here for Aboriginal people is not the same as it is for the black woman and the black man in America. They fight for equality, we fight for sovereignty, right? For self-determination and for autonomy. So, for example, in Gamilaray, and I spoke briefly about this yesterday, uh, we converged on Gamilaray to, uh, to protest and denounce uh, coal seam gas, right? So CSG, okay? And that's CSG wells have sprung up all throughout Queensland and New South Wales. Uh, it's incredibly damaging. There's a real threat that the great artesian basin, which is under Gamilaray, will be poisoned by CSG runoff. Now, that artesian basin is responsible for two million people receiving water and water for their agriculture, for their crops, for their animals, for life. Water is life. So when we converged on Gamilaray country, uh, the various networks that were active were pastoralists, settlers. Okay? So the government has told them that they own the topsoil of their land. At one time, they had purchased this land, stolen land, from the government, and they feel that they have an entitlement to said land. But the government has said, no, you have the topsoil, the minerals and the gas below belong to the government. Okay? So uh, that organisation, there's a couple, uh, couple there, Lock the Gate uh, and Frontline Action Against Coal. So when traditional owners and pastoralists come together in a context that we, are, we have no reconciliation, we don't even have consolation, which needs to happen prior to reconciliation. So pastoralists and traditional owners converging uh, to, to denounce the same thing. However, there's so much cognitive dissonance involved uh, from the settler population of this country that they could not concede that the land was ours. The land is ours. We don't claim ownership, we are it. And this is something I think that the settler population of, of Australia could learn. We don't want to take it from you. We don't, we don't want to see you homeless or impoverished like we have been. We would like you to acknowledge that the land and us are the same thing. So if you are fighting for the preservation of land and future, you're also fighting for us. And, and maybe that's something that the, the settler population doesn't understand necessarily, especially in the context of Gamilaray. So it was, it was um, a contentious time uh, because it was our, our traditional lands. Uh, we wanted to, to welcome and dance and perform ceremony and give the conglomeration there our blessing to move forward for their voices to be heard by our ancestors and to be treated safely and to be respected while they're on our country. But we had to fight for the right to welcome pastoralists who illegally occupy our lands to our lands. So you can see the irony there. I don't really have to spell it out. It's pretty obvious. 
Um, so there, there, is, there is struggle within struggles. I think that's all pretty clear too, especially uh, in, in environmental spaces where we are coming forward with a, with a cultural uh, belief that we are traditional custodians of the land and it is our responsibility to care for it. We don't want to own it. We don't own it. That is a capitalist concept. It is not a part of our culture and not part of our identity. So in terms of solidarity and the productivity that can be garnered, there are difficulties and struggle within struggle. But as all of my brothers and sisters who have spoken over the two days have strived to do, is to prevent you, present you with the, the reality, but also the positive aspects, because that's why we all still persevere. That's why we're all still here, because we do have success. We do have victories. There are respectful collaborations between various networks. And I speak particularly of uh, my opportunity to visit um, the Mapuche on their traditional lands as a member of war uh, and being incredibly envious of the autonomy and the self-determination and terrified by the militarisation. So it was our collective organising and our solidarity and our constant communication and support of one another that made that trip successful. And I'm sure we'll talk, other speakers will talk more about that exchange, but it was so valuable because we were um, Indigenous and non-Indigenous within that delegation. So there were people from popular uh, political movements, from Colombia and from Brazil as well, uh, so familiar and so supportive of the Indigenous struggle in their own context that they gave automatic compassion and support to ours. Um, It was also very productive to dispel or debunk the myth of Australia as being perfect. Um, Because this this is, you talked a lot, brother, about what the media can do, what the media can convince you of, the picture it can paint, that that we're some sort of egalitarian, utopian society. (laughs) And we're not. Democracy here is not even democracy. It's a corporatocracy. Because if it was an actual democracy, I wouldn't be here right now. I would have rights as, a, as an indigenous woman. I would be occupying my land. I would have my culture and I would speak my language. But this isn't a democracy because I don't have any of those things and they are not prioritised and they should be. So in terms of uh, solidarity action and the movement going forward, this gathering here is, is a perfect example of what people can accomplish. And I will say this, like the struggle within the struggle is very, very real, but with open and consistent dialogue, and, and, and I mean consistent, all the time. That we decided as war that we could not be a traditional collective without a 100% consensus-based decision-making process. Do you know how hard it is to get 20 people to agree on one thing in a convenient time frame? It's hard. But it's meant to be hard. It's meant to be hard because everyone gets heard. Everyone has their concerns validated and we will not leave until we come to a conclusion that everyone is satisfied with. That's what the struggle takes. It takes constant communication and not leaving until you know that everyone has felt validated, appreciated, and you understand how you're going to move forward. 
that might be a lot of work. It might be too hard for people. I get it. I get it. It is hard. We had one thing that we needed to accomplish, one decision, and it took us two days. Legitimately. But that was our traditional way then, and it will be, continue to be our way forward. And so I would suggest you also, if you are active within popular movements, within, uh, within environmental movements, or even a supporter of war, or, or any other aspect of Indigenous struggle, that you communicate openly. Don't be afraid to ask silly questions. Seriously. Silly questions are preferable as opposed to splintered collectives and fractured movements and passive-aggressive behaviour. Yeah? It is so much better to be straightforward and not move until you are happy with what you've done. And I know time is of the essence, but time also doesn't really exist. So it doesn't. We exist in space and not in time. So when you think, oh, there's no time, there's no time, time doesn't exist. So take the space to come to a productive and equal solution for everybody. Thank you. Hi, I'm Stuart. Hi, I'm Marita. We are the Orb Weavers, and you're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital radio. And streaming at 3cr.org.au. A weak solidarity, Bricky Team listener, when we live in a rudderless country, floating aimlessly toward a huge, albeit rapidly melting iceberg, leaderless, well, deputy leaderless, and no, rudderless wasn't a bad pun on a former big supremo. We could have said a barnacle-less country, although technically he's still here, out campaigning after the High Court attempted to scrape the barnacle off the floating ship of state. But in the nature of, it won't be long before the barnacle returns and steadies the boat the ship of restores the rudder. As an aside, looking at his visage, it could be called the ruddy, making it politically the only thing remotely read about Barnacle. Wonder whether he'll be celebrating a horse race on Tuesday or, by our calendar, the centenary of the Russian Revolution. Although we have to push on somehow without his hayseed and sheepshit party deputy Fiona gnashing her teeth, and one notion if that's Malcolm Rabbids, who knows climate change is not only crap, but is a UN of the US of the UN of the world conspiracy, and the UN of is a huge commie front, which I'm sure most of us have noticed, and the downside of the High Court decision is that Malcolm, the one notion if that version, is now hoping to impose himself on the people of Her Most Gracious Majesty's land in their state election. What have they done to deserve that? Thus, we have to hope democracy can go on without Fiona and Malcolm. It's going to be tough, but the High Court did nothing but give us a few weeks of relief from Barnacle. Although, given his by-election is crowding the news every day, it could make things worse. Our daily dose of Barnacle, or Barnacle's hat, or both. In fairness to the hat, it's the most intelligent thing north of his neck. And listening to Vox Pops from those who will vote to return him, saging what a good bloke he is, we have to agree there is a rapidly mounting case for a selective franchise in this country.
The ignorant electing the ignorant. But then, to be honest, that sums up parliamentary democracy. In our daily dose of Barnacle Thursday, he couldn't believe the Senate president had been caught up in this dual citizenship trap. He's a dope, Barnacle scoffed at such stupidity. But, but Barnacle, you got thrown out by the same cause. It's a totally different situation. In what way? He's him and I'm me. Sometimes we have to wonder whether a win is a win. This week, as the other Malcolm, big supremo ton of bull worshipped at the Temple of Zion, the High Court gave us a win by preventing Barnacle acting as big supremo. After all, even in a few days, the damage could be irreparable. There might be nothing for Malcolm to come home to. But then the High Court deflated the win by giving us the minister for going overseas all the time and being a perfectly good little prefect, Julie Bash up the workers as acting big supremo. Win-win, lose-lose, win-lose, lose-win, who knows? We do know the damage seems irreparable for the no-proper-papers, queue-jumping, illegal boat people enjoying our Manus Island holiday resort caught in a Joseph Hell. Sorry, Joseph Heller. In other words, a catch-22. You can't leave. We told them when they wanted to leave. You must leave. We now order them when they don't want to leave. And both the Minister for Concentration Camps raise a wire and sink the boats Peter Duffer and his Socialist Party very shadow counterpart Richard Mauls the Desperates agree something as dangerous as bringing them here would destroy our proud multicultural society, encourage evil people smugglers, drown and hurt the hopeless we're starving and dehydrating and withdrawing medical access from, and flood us with selfish, greedy, land-grabbing people fleeing little problems like our invasions. The Socialist Party has attacked Peter in the caring business class lot for their inhumanity, for offering no solution but life imprisonment in a different concentration camp. Uh, Yes, Richard, uh, what's your compassionate solution? Send them somewhere else. Oh, well, True Blue Aussie, for instance. Send them somewhere else. And we wonder why the desperates feel desperate. Malcolm, the big supremo one, worshipping at the Temple of Zion. Next Thursday is Oaks Day, and believe it or not, the first Oaks in 1860 was won by a filly called Palestine. True. And I raise this because it may well be the last time Palestine won anything. 57 years later, they may have thought they'd won something when these true blue Aussies came charging in and led them to believe they'd been liberated. Palestine was safely theirs. Little did they know, as Malcolm celebrated this week, they had just lost their country, had become non-people, landless, stateless, homeless non-people, celebrating their own future demise as, 100 years later, Zion Big Supremo Benjamin, not another Yahoo, and Malcolm celebrated Tuberwazi's role in throwing out the non-people and establishing Zion, which continues to celebrate by continually expanding its borders and occupying the non-country the non-people try to exist in and to ensure the non-people are kept in their place. Although in an ideal world, (laughs) Benjamin laughed, causing Malcolm to piss himself with the humour, non-land, non-people would have no place being anywhere. 
No, seriously, he went on seriously, and Al Malcolm looked up from licking Benjamin's boots and nodded agreement. As a non-people with no land, they have no right to be anywhere, to occupy land that is rightly a part of greater Zion. All those jingoistic, deep-thinking, true-blue-Aussie worshippers of not only Zion, but of trained killing, of which Zion is world-class, those worshippers in trained killer circa 1917 uniforms who rode in to recreate the exile of the non-people, oozed with authenticity, like carrying the true-blue-Aussie Her Most Gracious Majesty's Union Jack flag side-by-side with the Star of Day the Zion flag, showing how prescient those young true blue Aussie liberators must have been in 1917, getting in early with the future flag, knowing the star of David and Zion would replace Palestine. Although with all those horses, maybe they were really celebrating Palestine the racehorse, allowing them to celebrate our role in establishing the Zionist state without deserting Palestine altogether, even if we have deserted the non-people. But as Benjamin would say, how can we desert people who don't exist? Then, continuing to celebrate the great values that forged this country, we also learned it was the 75th anniversary of something or other on the Kokoda Trail Stroke Track. Well, they seem to be able to find one a day to celebrate a bit of war and slaughter. No connection, but as I watched and listened to and read all this this week, I couldn't work out why I kept feeling extremely nauseous. Sure, we'll get similar blanket coverage of the Russian Revolution, although given how they will cover it, it might be better they do just ignore it and can't wait for the mass coverage next month of the centenary of the second conscription referendum when True Blue Aussie voted not to send working-class cannon fodder to war to train, kill and be trained killed. Notice the Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin yesterday, earth-shattering, most important story in the whole world, front page, money being stolen from parking meters from, quote, Victorians visiting sick children and honouring war dead. So what they're saying, the obvious lesson is, next time we're going to knock off a parking meter, don't pick one near the children's hospital or the shrine to train killing and slaughter. Slaughter, sadly, for the caring business class, the bloody commie ACTU, wants to get rid of the minimum wage. Could I hear you say the minimum wage is slaughtering poor caring employers? No. The ACTU wants a living wage as a percentage of the average wage, which would substantially increase the wage of the lowest of low paid. How myopic. As the True Blue Aussie Industry Profits Group pointed out, studies have shown the best solution for the lowest of low paid is for payments via the tax system through the public purse. We pay them. Didn't say who did the study, but what a pity the lowest of low paid can't comprehend how the whole thing works. Unlike the highest of high paid, and congratulations to Bianca, daughter of our number one on the rich highest of high paid list, Gina, who Bianca has, who Bianca that is, has come in at this year at number five in her own right. Mum number one, Bianca number five. The usual runt heart family, happy families, struggling along with about 30 billion between them.
showing what a talented person Bianca must be. What a talented family. Finally, a clue to picking the cup winner. The week that was, Omen System. It's a system which, if it works, we get the winner once every 50 years, which some putters might see as pretty good odds. Although it also brings back bitter memories. 50 years ago, we went straight to the cup from an all-night party. <laughs> oh, what we could do 50 years ago, which would near kill us now. All-night party celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Russian Revolution, November 7 by our calendar, the October Revolution by theirs. There is a horse running around at the moment called Russian Revolution, and if it does turn up this week, it has to be the omen bit of the past century. Anyway, 50 years ago, straight to the cup, and after the race, looked at each other and couldn't believe we hadn't taken the Quinella, let alone back the winner. Red-handed beat Red Crest. It still hurts. So there we are. Look for the 100th anniversary omen. And for all the problems that arose with, um, with that we were celebrating, for the way so-called communism in Russia continues to create difficulties for those seeking real communism, the events of a hundred years ago were and are, do remain, hold obviously a significant place in working class history. Fifty years ago here, we thought the revolution was around the corner. We were a bit out. But console ourselves, listener, with the thought that logically, every day it's getting closer. Good morning. Hi, I'm Aaron Pedersen, and you're listening to 3CR. You are. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and we've got Bill Mitchell on the line. G'day, Bill. How are you? I'm very welcome. I'm very uh, good. Thanks for having me. <laughs> it's a bit early, isn't it? It is. <laughs> but we've got great things to talk about. Uh, we have been told by the big end of town that uh, the wages growth can't be improved until productivity improves. The furphy is out once again. Well, that's what they've been saying forever. I mean, if you go and look at the... Uh, uh, transcripts of all of the wage cases in the Arbitration Commission and now Fair Work Australia, there's, there's virtually never a time when the employers say there should be a wage increase. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and they're, under, they're under scrutiny now because wages, are at re- wages growth is at record lows for as long as they've been keeping the current data series. We're, we've had a sequence of uh, months of record low growth and so everyone's starting to realise uh, that something's going on. And then you look at the recent retail sales figures, which are collapsing. And, uh, you know, the big department stores are recording uh, major falls in their revenue and sales. Uh, they're, they're turning around blaming Amazon, of course, or the, the, the prospect of Amazon. But the reality is that... Uh, Households have, uh, have got very little wages growth. Uh, some months recently, the actual real equivalent, the purchasing power equivalent of those wages have fallen because the uh, money value of the wages is growing slower than the inflation rate. Uh, and uh, that's, that's causing households who are carrying record levels of debt to tighten their belts, so to speak, and uh, that's damaging retail sales. So 
the employers have now got to say something, and so they're coming up with a new angle, and this is this productivity angle. It's interesting, isn't it, because uh, it's just a a furphy in a sense, because uh, productivity... Well, actually, listen to this quote. Chief Executive of Coles owner, West Farmers, Richard Coida, said it was a reality of capitalism that wage growth would not pick up unless profits were also healthy. However, profits are healthy, aren't they? And the key in that is capitalist. Well, clearly, I mean, and see, notice that's a separate argument from the productivity argument. Mm. Productivity is about how much you produce for how much you put into the production. So it's output per unit of input. And the the point about productivity growth as from a societal perspective is that to gain real material standards of living growth, a nation has to be more productive. So if you want if you want a, a given population to have more material stuff or a given workforce to be able to generate more material stuff, which means that our homes have got more things in them, hmm. we have better cars, more cars, all of this stuff. So I'm thinking about purely material, not nothing to do with you know how you how happy we are. That's right. Uh, but. Uh, there's an inference that the more things we've got, the happier we are. That's the sort of, uh, you know, the mass consumption ethic. Uh, well, you know, productivity growth is the essence for that. We need to, we need higher productivity growth means we have more stuff and we have to do less for it. And But the, the question about that then is, well, how do we distribute that productivity growth? How do we make sure that... Uh, Everybody in society benefits from that productivity growth, and and this is the sort of classic struggle that goes on in the workplace. That uh, workers want more more of that productivity growth, and bosses want more. And governments, traditionally, in certainly the post Second World War period, were mediating that sort of struggle between capital and labour. And uh, what's happened over the last two or three decades? is that the government has firmly got behind capital rather than labour. So I'm thinking, you know, the industrial relations law changes, which have really damaged the ability of unions to organise, cutting penalty rates, allowing the Fair Work Australia to cut penalty rates, uh, a whole range of other things, um, maintaining uh, mass unemployment, which suppresses wages growth. They've all shifted the balance of the struggle over productivity towards bosses, away from workers. And uh, what you, and and how do I know that? Well, you just have to look at the. So each year the economy produces each period the economy is producing national income, and there's a measure of how much of that national income workers share in. It's called the wage share in national income pretty well self-explanatory. yeah. And uh, the wage share, say, in the 70s, early 70s, was around 60%. Well, it's now hovering down around 51% now. Mm. And so there's been a, you know, a 9 percentage point redistribution of national income, the production of the economy, 
and the income generation in the economy has been a redistribution over the last several decades from workers to bosses to capital to profits. And uh, so for them to turn around and say that, oh, we need productivity growth to have wages growth, well, there's already productivity growth going on and wages growth has been lagging dramatically behind that. And how do I know that? Because the wage share has, has fallen dramatically. It's interesting, isn't it? Because what they're doing is using arguments to blind people to the reality. So productivity is used to say that that is the most concerning element of uh, of a healthy economy. Uh, rather, so it diverts people's attention from uh, the reason for why we are here and. Uh, the inequality argument, which is now resurfacing, it's that was uh, dismissed for a very long time for the uh, so-called uh, golden uh, solution, which was increased productivity. Well, for a long time, in, economists in the 1960s used to say one of the stylized facts, you know, one of the verities of the system was that there would be a correspondence between the growth in productivity and the growth in the real purchasing power of wages, what we call a real wage. So how much your dollars in your pockets buys in the shops. And uh, it was considered to be just one of these stylized facts of, of the economy that as productivity grew, workers were able to get real wage growth and better standards of living in a material sense because the system allowed them to access that productivity growth. And, of course, bosses always contested it, but there were systems in place. Workers had bargaining power with through their unions, through uh, penalty rates being legislated and these types of things. And what's with, what we've seen... Since about the 1980s, it was with the Hawke government in Australia, but the Hawke government were just mirroring the neoliberalism that was going on globally. What we saw then was a deviation of productivity growth and real wages growth. So don't want to blind everybody with figures, but since, say, the 1980s, productivity growth might have been about 80% growth from from now to then. Mm whereas real wages have only grown about 20% from now to then. Right. So that gap that gap has been... And that's in that wage share figure I mentioned. There's been a massive redistribution, and it means that workers aren't sharing as much as they used to. They're finding it much more difficult to get growth in their real standards of living out of uh, their wage. And that's one of the reasons why you've got rising inequality, because... The, the top end of town are, are benefiting from the rising share of profits. Yeah, right. So the they're just and, sneaking off with all the money and the power. Well, well, I mean, there was a, in the New York Times yesterday, I saw a dramatic graphic of the, the top 1% of, over the last decade have captured 95% of the growth in income in the US. Oh, wow. Now, how can that be? Yeah. Top, 1%, top 1% of income recipients, have captured ninety percent of the ninety five percent of the growth. Now that's dramatic inequality, and that's because the because 
governments have refused to create work and the private sector hasn't created enough work. It's because governments have attacked trade unions. It's because governments have tried to overhaul in Australian context uh, minimum wages and penalty rates and uh, keep them down. It's because governments have attacked transfer systems, all all doing the work that the that the elites and capital want them to do. Get a load of this. Let's go back to this chief executive of Coles. Um, yeah. uh, uh, owner. Do we have to? Yeah, well, no, but listen to this quote. This is just an outrageous quote. This is in a mainstream newspaper. He didn't mind saying it. This is uh, Richard Coder, uh, Coder. Uh, a lot of people on low wages are employed by retailers. Now, remember that the employers got rid of the penalty rates. I know they used... Well, the, they cut the penalty rates. Yeah, they cut them. Yeah, yeah, cut the penalty rates. A, pro- a lot of people on low wages are employed by retailers, and we desperately want to pay them more because that's good for them, their families and their security. Mr. Coida told the National Press Club on, in Canberra, but you only can do that through growth in productivity and you grow productivity by having competitive tax systems, a competitive industrial relations system, the micro and macroeconomic reforms the country needs. So are they just prepared to lie in their teeth, these guys, well, for their own that's profits? Just, that's just been the neoliberal narrative for yeah. the last three or four three or four decades. That's what that's what we've been told consistently will improve. It's the trickle down theory. And uh, Which has the, been disproven. And the de- clearly and uh, the deregulation theory. If you get rid of all work protections, workers will be better off. If you if you uh, get rid of uh, uh, pr- uh, protection over hours of work, workers will be better off. They'll have more choice. If you get rid of penalty rates, there'll be more jobs. Uh, or, or if you get rid of trade unions, you'll free workers and they'll be able to make choices. This has been the narrative. And, uh, well, the increasing inequality, the, the entrenched uh, underutilisation of labour, the, which includes the dramatic rise in underemployment, the, you know, the rise of the precariat, the, the workers now with, without any real security. And in the US, in the UK, you know, you've got the, uh, uh, zero hours contract jobs. Yeah, that's what it, I was you know, exactly thinking about that. It's just uh, plain uh, out abuse, basically. No, yeah, I mean, this is just, this is just the dominant narrative that, that is, is, has failed. I mean, it, uh, it's also related deregulation of the financial sector. All these things have failed. And what, what, what keeps them going as the dominant narrative is the control of the media and the, Unwillingness of the of the media to, you know, the, the the idea of investigative reporting now and critical analysis has gone. I mean, what the mainstream media just gets press releases from these companies and executives and what have you, and they just repeat them. Well, of course, any, they without any critical scrutiny. They they've fired most of them. And they keep using, uh, they, they just rub their hands together going, uh, electronic media, we can keep put, uh, cut and paste a whole lot of articles from other places and so we don't have to employ anybody, basically. Exactly. But there's hope, I think. And, uh, and if you think to the recent British election, yep. where all, of, all the neoliberal Blairites were undermining 
Jeremy Corbyn, who was who was starting to articulate a different narrative. Uh, and the British press did everything they could. It's partic- you know, even the Guardian. Yeah, I know. Which was me- even the Guardian. I mean, you expect it from the Murdoch tabloid, but even the Guardian was every day writing just total nonsense about how Corbyn was a desperate loser and uh, was going to bring the place to ruin, and nobody liked him, and he was a he was an anti-Semite, and all of this stuff just went on and on. Well, Corbyn nearly won the election, and the Blairites were humiliated in the Labor Party. And when you think about that, and Corbyn also won a significant uh, share of the youth vote, yeah. the young people. Now, when you think about that, why is it that Corbyn was able to defy what has been a, a, a historical norm? If the tabloids and the mainstream press go against you, you haven't got a hope in hell. Why could he? Why? Why did he defy that? And the answer is that the young people don't read the mainstream press; they read social media, and and that's a grassroots communication uh, means, which which has really uh, eroded, in my view, the power of mainstream press. And so, organisations like yours and uh, all of the social media derivatives. Uh, 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 have got a, a massive empowerment effect for young people, and they're the future. And so I've got hope that we'll be able to alter this narrative, but it's a, it's very entrenched. I just remind people that they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast, and we have to finish soon. We're talking to Bill Mitchell. Uh, th- there's a couple of things I wanted to get to ask you just before we had to go. I, I saw yeah. a really sort of uh, startlingly awful uh, press uh, conference thing that was going on in England uh, last night with Theresa May flanked by the English flag and the uh, Israeli flag, uh, her speaking to uh, celebrations, I guess, of uh, the Israeli state. Uh uh, it was incredibly dripping with uh, English uh, uh, conservatism aligning itself with the Zionist state. Uh, obviously, yeah. in relation to Corbyn, I presume. Well, it's a no. It's the hundredth anniversary, wasn't it, of the yeah. of, of of the creation of the Israeli state and. Uh, uh, Corbyn refused, and and uh, Netanyahu was at a dinner with Theresa May. Yeah, and uh, Corbyn had refused to go. Well, it was yeah. like a Nazi kind of setup. I mean, it's quite interesting. I did an interview years ago with someone about uh, the uh, Hitler's uh, Olympics, and it was a startling truth that. Uh, most of our Olympics follow the floor plan visually that uh, Hitler set up, and it would appear that a lot of our iconography establishes the same sort of motif. Well, you know, I can't comment on that uh, as an economist, but I I would suspect that uh, all of these organisations and movements use quite vivid and appealing types of icons to attract their attention. But, uh, you know, I think the, I think the, uh, the what, what we know from history is that the creation of the Israeli state in the way it was created has been a, has been a, a, a really big problem for, for the Palestinians, 
uh, and also a really big problem for the world. And I think that, you know, the Brit- the British have their hands on that as they have their hands on the, you know, the Indian, uh, Pakistani, Bangladeshi-type creation, the petition, and a number of a number of disasters in Africa as well as a result of their colonial past. So it's kind of, in, kind of interesting, isn't it, that uh, the English uh, try to hide their sort of, uh, you know, their, their place in history and people should really be very careful. I did an interview recently with a woman called, uh, a filmmaker who made a film called The Last Goldfish and her father got out of Germany uh, in 1933 uh, and went to uh, um, one of the uh, Caribbean states, and within that was a English colony. And within twelve weeks of his uh, getting there, the English had closed that door for people to mm. escape. And I mean, there's collusion, isn't there, uh, at such a high level? Uh, it's it's frightening to think that uh, people who like to put a, a nice face on it are so involved in such a, a terrible history. But anyway, we can agree with that. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty awful. Anyway, the uh, issue of uh, the economy and the way the big end of town is trying to make everybody believe that the whole world is going to fall apart, which it perhaps will uh, if the capitalist system falls. The 2008 uh, uh, disaster was uh, averted by governments putting public money uh, into the capitalist system effectively which had robbed everybody, now they think that the uh, the ship is still afloat? Uh, clearly. I mean, what, what, we, what we saw in 2008 and particularly 2009 was what the capitalist system is. It's a system of privatised the returns and socialised the losses. Yeah. And uh, that, that's, the, that's the hallmark of the system that... Uh, they the, the 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 capital through its lobbying groups and uh, uh, the peak associations and all the rest of it, they continually lobby government to allow them to have uh, a, a much freer uh, field in which they can uh, try to maximise their returns. Of course, that brings, as we saw with the two thousand and eight crash. Uh, that environment uh, leads to much higher risk, but not only risk. It's not just a risk and return issue. That, that demonstrated that the capitalist system has has a, a predilection to corruption and uh, the greed, and leads to corruption and dishonesty and illegal behaviour. And that was clearly evident in the way the uh, uh, the financial sector operated. I think Gordon Brown said the other day in, in a a lecture in Britain that he he regrets that uh, a number of British bankers aren't in jail now because of the way they behaved. Yeah, well, and um, and so you know what we saw there were so you know the whole lobbying pressure on government to deregulate, privatise is all about building a free field for them to go for it, and of course that leads that their greed goes crazy. Uh, they take too much risk and then they make huge losses which then impact upon everybody and then they ask the government to bail them out. And when the bailout's completed, 
oh, we hate government spending again. That that becomes the narrative. You know, in 2009, none of the top end of town were talking about deficits and uh, government spending. They were all uh, had their hands out, uh, pocketing the money, preserving their high salaries and keeping their ships afloat, to use your analogy. And uh, as soon as they were safe, what, what did they start doing again? Attacking welfare spending, attacking support for the unemployed, and uh, demanding more deregulation and privatisation, etc. So it's just an ongoing story, and uh, people are going to have to eventually get wise to this and uh, make some changes. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks for uh, getting up early and having a yarn with me today. No worries, Annie. Take care. All the best to you. Thanks. That was Bill Mitchell from Newcastle University Economist. Fantastic man. He's got a blog, uh, Bill's blog, Billy blog. Uh, get on board and you will get the good oil. We're coming up to the end of the program. There's a couple of things you should be notified about. There's going to be a big rally today in the city at the State Library Steps in Victoria, Melbourne. Uh, and, of course, it's about menace. It's this disgusting thing that uh, the federal government has withdrawn. Uh, they've just said, you know, like menace is supposed to be illegal, which, of course, uh, the PNG government's legal system has uh, announced that uh, Manus has to close. What does our government do? It said, oh, well, there you go, piss off. We've uh, imprisoned you for all these years and now we're not going to support you in any sense or, or even down to water, clothing and food. Uh, disgusting, disgusting, disgusting. So get on board, go down to State, li- uh, t- State Library Steps to voice your disapproval, 2pm. Disgusting. It's it's absolutely disgusting stuff. Uh, just a reminder about the public housing issue, Northcote, uh, Walker Street Estate, one o'clock, November the 11th, that's Remembrance Day. Just remember that we're all fighting for a better world and uh, as Bill said, people have to wise up because these stupid, stupid arguments that are being put forward by the uh, big end of town as they guzzle at the trough shouldn't blind people to what's really going on. Change needs to happen. we're going to, uh, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. And I thought we might get, oh, I'll remind you of a couple of things and then I'll be back. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian starves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. As I said, coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We'll go out with uh, Vika and Linda Bull. Tasting flowers 
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.